Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mail, which I haven't hosted for a while, but I'm back this week. And I'm here for a special interview with Isaac Rose, who's the author of a new book, The Rentier City, Manchester and the Making of the Neoliberal Metropolis. We're going to get on onto that in a minute. Um, but first of all, I want to thank our sponsor of today's episode, which is the Halle. We've been running a campaign, a sponsorship campaign with the Halle for a few weeks now, partly to emphasise the amazing concerts they've got, partly just to emphasise that there is this world-class orchestra, musical organisation in our city that probably doesn't get as much attention as it should. I, mean, I feel that some of the other cultural things that we have get more. The football club certainly get a huge amount of um, attention. But the Halle is an amazing gem. It was described as one of the best orchestras in the world by the Times. And um, they've just been doing the Steve Reich last week. And now they've got a whole bunch of great concerts coming up. They've got Brahms, Requiem, they've got Bruckner, they've got Spanish Rush Hour concert, uh, they've got Sibelius. So there's loads of good stuff coming up. If you hit the link in the show notes, you'll be able to see what they've got coming up. Go on to their website. Have you been to the Halle recently? I was actually there last Sunday and this wasn't uh, <laughs> <laughs> planned. But uh, yeah, I was at Debussy and uh, Cacciatore. Excellent. Very good. Good friend of mine plays viola there. Oh, excellent. Yeah, well, it's a real gem. Um, check out the Halle's website. If you've got a free evening, they sometimes do short concerts, like an hour long, etc. if you're not a huge sort of classical music person and you want a bit of an intro. So thanks so much to the Halle for sponsoring this episode. Now, Isaac, I know you as, well, from various organisations, I think. I know you as an organiser for the Greater Manchester Tenants Union. You're very active with that sort of exposing bad landlords, helping tenants to get um, justice in, in particular neighbourhoods where you guys operate. You're a member of Greater Manchester Housing Action, and that is a, an activist group, a pressure group, that has been very successful in getting a, a particular point of view about Manchester across. I, I have something in the back of my mind that you were referred to at one point as the chair of Manchester Branch of Momentum. So, so, so can you just give us, before we get into the book and before we get into your argument, can you just give us a bit of a background, you, what you do and your relationship to Manchester specifically? Sure. Well, I've lived in Manchester now almost 10 years. I came in 2015. And for a huge part of that time, I've been very kind of uh, active in broadly housing justice movement of the city through those two organisations you mentioned. Yeah, housing action, I think, probably had its peak in the kind of more... 2016 to 2020 kind of era, maybe 2021. And then since 2020, I've been an employee of the Great Manchester Tenants Union, which is a kind of far more kind of robust organisation with a membership and, and presence all across the city. And it's really that kind of experience in that, that kind of broad movement of both those kind of epochs, if you like, that have kind of informed the book and a kind of, was sort of part of the impetus for writing the book, really, to, to bring across that experience in the city. And it's worth saying that we've been in touch with you, particularly when we've been writing about housing and you have said you should go and speak to this person or there's a particular landlord you should look at or whatever. So there's a bit of a pre-existing sort of yeah, r- yeah. relationship. And we spoke about, about in your Pete for Peace for Richard Lisa's uh, retirement. That was it. That was it. It was the last time I was in these offices. That was it. So, so there was actually, in, in that piece that I wrote about Richard Lees, it was a long piece, and there was a quote in there where at a private drinks reception, yeah. he said to me, he described, I think people like you, possibly even you personally, as, was it middle-class wankers? Was it middle-class wankers? Tosspots, I think. Tosspots, right, fine. And what he was kind of, I think, getting at was there are these housing activists who don't really get the concerns of our, my real Mancunians who I represent and, and whatever. Did you, when you read that in the, in the article at the time, did you take that to be referring to you? Did you take that personally? 
No, I mean, it was just a comment by uh, Richard Lees, I think. I think a lot of the work that I'm involved in, I mean, the Tenants' Union is a membership organisation. It's not a small group of activists, which I think is what the people we've criticised like to present it as, as a group of academics or something. But I, I would say that the kind of critique that we've put forward is shared by a wide swathe of people across the city from different social classes. So, I don't, yeah. So let's address... <laughs> it was a rather silly comment from yeah, yeah. What's your sort of background? You, you you credited at the beginning of the book. You credited your father. Yes. Um, what was his relationship to the city? Uh, well, he was born in Fallowfield in nineteen forty nine and kind of grew up here. His father was from Manchester too. Yeah. You know, so I, he he left Manchester in kind of the early nineties when I was born, but was always brought up kind of coming to Manchester, having a very close kind of family affiliation with Manchester kind of brought up to say Manchester good leads bad because uh, we were just in West Yorkshire so yeah it was it was always this the city that we kind of had had an affinity to came to like family lived here yeah so it's it, it was always a very obvious place to move basically after you know studying and do you have an academic background because it's interesting reading your book you deploy a lot of sort of academic concepts and theories to what extent is your background academic to what extent is it activist I mean, I don't have a PhD, so I wouldn't say I really have a academic background. I did a master's in geography at Birkbeck a few years ago, which was, again, like the reason I did that was sort of spurred on by the work that was going on in Manchester. And yeah, as you say, like a lot of that kind of theoretical approach, particularly in the later chapters, is kind of brought in. Um, and I think part of the reason for writing this book was partly because I think there is quite a lot of very useful research that's done in these fields that is not given a, a kind of wider public audience. I mean, the book is written as a book to be read by anyone. It's not written in an academic style, I wouldn't say. And I think there's a real need for some of that thinking and work and research to have a much more kind of firm place within the public sphere, I suppose, which was kind of part of the impetus for this book. And I think also, like, Housing Action has or did quite successfully, I think, deploy academic research, but in a kind of uh, way that was oriented towards the public sphere. Yeah. So let's dive in. The rentier city, Manchester and the making of the neoliberal metropolis. First of all, what does the rentier city mean for people who are listening to this and who haven't haven't read the book? Sure. So the, the concept is sort of taken from Brett Christophers, uh, who is a kind of political economist who's doing... A lot of really interesting work at the moment analysing the British economy, but also kind of analysing the way in which the economy has, has moved more broadly. I mean, his, his latest book is Our Lives in Their Balance Sheets, looking at uh, the role of kind of institutional investors in all aspects of life. So not just housing and land, but kind of all all parts of the economy, there is a role, an increasing role of these kind of actors um, and, and he has this work that came out a few years ago into capitalism which takes Britain sort of as the as the kind of paradigmatic or most advanced case of where rentiers by which he defines as people who command an income from having an asset as having kind of a, a really important and kind of growing role within the whole British economy and that's everything from like infrastructure to contracts to uh, housing to land to finance so that's the kind of broad sort of inspiration, I suppose, is this kind of work that's being done around the economy. And then, you know, the, 
the conceit, I suppose, or the, the angle of the book is, you know, if Britain's the paradigmatic example of this, then Manchester is a place that we can really understand it within Britain, particularly in these kind of classic forms of, of rentierism, which is kind of land and, and housing and then also kind of finance. So that's the sort of the reason it was picked. And I, sp- I suppose that, you know, if, if, as you read the book, it's not just about, and I'm sure we'll come on to it, it's not just about contemporary Manchester, but sort of situating that within the longer history of the city and, uh, and the kind of shifts in the way that the economy has moved over that time. So, yeah, that's, that's the broad concept. Yeah. So for people who don't maybe use concepts like um, rentier and, 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 and neoliberal and stuff in, the, in their sort of day-to-day life, when we're talking about rentier, we're talking about economic models in which people are earning from assets rather than from labour, primarily. Neoliberal... Or that, scarce asset, yeah. Yeah, neoliberalism, the title, and it comes mm. a lot in the book. What's your sort of definition? or How should people understand the word neoliberal in, in order to understand your ideas? I think, well, neoliberalism is a sort of economic philosophy and also kind of political project that has sort of defined the world, really, since the 1970s, 1980s. It's characterised by the loosening of controls on finance, the stripping back of various aspects of the kind of post-war welfare state. Uh, it's about the kind of reconstitution of the of the state to sort of be an enabler for private actors within the economy. And it was a political project, I suppose, by various actors within from the 60s onwards to sort of decompose organised labour, you know, various other kind of forces in society that had kind of been the underpinning of that kind of social democratic settlement. So I suppose if you're thinking about Manchester, it's kind of thinking about the changes in the city that have happened over the last kind of 40 years, basically, and kind of political struggles that, that, that led to this point, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. The, a lot of your book, maybe about two thirds or maybe half, is dedicated to analysis of Manchester's history and the way it's changed and the, and the different phases. And I think while that's fascinating, I think from the point of view of like this interview, maybe I'll stick a bit more to the present because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's newer ground. Not that many people write books about Manchester in the present. As you said a minute ago, you sort of talk about Manchester as the paradigmatic city, the poster child for neoliberal urbanism. And you're basically saying, I think, in this book, look at Manchester because that's the way the British economy is going. And I, I wondered, what what is it that you see in Manchester that's particularly pronounced that's happening faster or, or, or more in Manchester than other places? Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the skyline on one level. Um, it's that the way in which the local state has been able to leverage in sort of agglomeration and bring in kind of infrastructure projects and big kind of prestige cultural institutions and things as a way of leveraging in more private capital into the city and I think this is in part the capital coming in is is coming in in order to kind of then extract out through through rents and things like that and I think Manchester the way in which Manchester's kind of leadership since the 80s firmly pursued this model and and, and kind of increasingly to the present day is sort of seen particularly for like regional British cities as like the model to follow Um, you know everyone wants to have a bit of what Manchester's got or everyone wants to kind of do the Manchester thing. So, you know, and, and, and this is a sort of, we're not going to talk about the history, but, you know, once upon a time, people would say, well, well, towns across the, across the UK are, are all little Manchesters. And I think that feeling, you know, not about industry, but about this kind of, this, this, this new model still holds weight. And I think places like Sheffield or Liverpool or, or Leeds 
try uh, uh, Glasgow, you know, they're all trying to do this kind of thing, and I think none of them have done it to the kind of success that Manchester has. There's no doubting that what Manchester's done has been a success, kind of on its own terms. So I think looking at Manchester and understanding Manchester and what they, you know, what they were doing and what, what they've tried to do, and this is the primarily the kind of lease era leadership with Stringer as well, is really useful because it, it's, it's, it allows us to see other things in other places um, and other cities. Yeah, I think there's something that's quite crystallised in Manchester that, you know, if you can look at it and understand it and think about it, that just is kind of good for understanding wider things going on in the country. And so you're going to be going on this book tour, I think, to other places. And I sense from that that there's a there's a sort of a bit of a warning in the book. I mean, there's actually like a current explicit warning that other places shouldn't pursue this Manchester model. And, and my question, I guess, would be, why not? Why should... Glasgow or Leeds or Sheffield or Liverpool not do what they're currently doing I think which is looking at Manchester and saying that looks great lots of new jobs lots of economic growth uh, lots of buzz we want that sure I mean there was quite a lot of research done you know the business school or whatever that does critique whether the growth is 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 of jobs and things across the city region is like as good as it is claimed you know Carol Williams and stuff so I think you know even the terms of the question you know it's it's not necessarily as as rosy as, as people are saying but I think the risks uh, you know as the book goes on and kind of towards is around the relationship around kind of these things of displacement gentrification rising rents and probably also and this is maybe not explored as much as it, as it could be in the book but the kind of fragility perhaps of the model you know Manchester is very dependent on like international students. The build to rent sector relies a lot on international students as the kind of main core of, of its kind of renters. That's not guaranteed, right? We know what's going on in the world. You know, it might be that Chinese students no longer want to come to Manchester for various reasons or, or whatever. So, you know, there's a fragility sort of inbuilt into the model. And I think the speculative nature of the model and the sort of debt funded nature of aspects of the model it lend itself to this kind of fragility. Um, and the risks of that. So I think there's kind of two risks. There's, you know, is the model sustainable and, and, and is there a fragility there? But also, there are also kind of lots of negative social effects that are coming from the particular way in which it's been pursued here, which again goes down to like not doing social housing at the same time, not collecting as much Section 106 money as you could. You know, this, these arguments are not, you know, have been well rehearsed, but that, that the, it's, it's been quite singular, single-minded uh, approach we're seeing I'm seeing in the tendency and the negative effects of this and I think that's just something that other cities should take heed of I suppose that's not, yeah. because someone in Birmingham or Glasgow might say well in the past 20 years we've had sort of 10% growth in jobs which isn't isn't great over you know 2001 to 2021 and Manchester's had something like 40% and someone like Leeds has had 20% and therefore, actually, the Manchester model looks quite good to us because our fundamental concern is, can people get jobs? Can people earn a living? And the Manchester model has delivered that while rents have gone up, but fairly in a fairly similar way to other places. I mean, Manchester's rental increases. I mean, I, I looked before this. I couldn't find anything particularly unusual about them. I think to, since 2018, Liverpool's rents are up 35%. Bristol, similar. Newcastle, similar. Nottingham, almost 30 Manchester is around 25. Proviso, it's bloody hard to know what how rents are going up, isn't it? Because the rental data is always much worse than the others. But could an argument not be mounted by those other cities? Actually, 
we've also got rents going up loads, but we don't have lots of jobs growth. We don't have an economy that's growing very fast. And actually, we, we quite like the look of Manchester. I mean, the job growth often in these kind of low-wage service sectors, I assume you're referring to some of the work that you've published. I mean, this growth of like elementary employment in the city centre, you know, this is people serving coffees. This is people working in, in, in bars and things a lot of the time. And, and you, you know, the, the mill itself has done some really good work, I think, exposing some of the bad labour conditions of that. So I think it's not necessarily, it's low-wage jobs a lot of the time. And while you have kind of rents going up, you know, taking more and more of that wage income out of the city, you know, are, the, are these things, you know, are they keeping pace with one another, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. So tell me a bit about the um, rent tenants union work that you do, because I guess you get a much better anecdotal look at people who are struggling with bad landlords, people who've had massive rent increases, people are being turfed out. Tell us what you're seeing in that role that has partly, I guess, motivated you to write the book. Yeah, well, so our members are both private tenants um, and social tenants. So I think in the two sectors, there are obviously different issues. The private tenants, again, you can subdivide that. So you've got like people with the kind of classic rubbish landlord, won't do the repairs, raising the rent. You know, there's a complete lack of controls on on that kind of stuff in, in Britain evictions, all this kind of stuff, um, you know, the, the law centre who we work very closely with are kind of inundated with evictions. So there's that kind of churn of people being moved out or, or, or paying more and more of their income on rent. In the private rented sector where it's a kind of small landlords, I mean, we're increasingly getting, and even this evening we have a meeting of tenants in a city centre block who are, who are basically facing poor maintenance, things are falling apart, you know, some of these things are not very well built or service charges are increasing so it's, it's there's a kind of myriad of issues that tenants and renters face in the city and then I suppose in social housing you know obviously been in the news massively the kind of crisis around damp and mold and uh, poor conditions but I think the other thing that is is people want to be in social housing and there's just not enough being built so you know often and it's, you know, it says this in the book, you know, you get people who come with a with a problem in social housing and, and actually they're in a way lucky compared to people who are being evicted and want to be in social housing to stay in an area they know, that kind of stuff. And there's just not the supply of social housing for people. So those are the kind of renter issues, I suppose. And then the other thing that we've been very involved in is is around combating gentrification, broad, you know, broadly kind of defined so I suppose particular developments demolitions estate demolition you know we're fighting a big estate demolition in Rochdale and have done for many years that's the seven sisters which actually the demolition has been paused thanks to the kind of work of the tenants and residents there and that's a whole process and then in kind of the area where I've been working we've there's been these kind of planning battles block the block and things like that the union and our members have supported in various ways these campaigns so it's not just, I suppose, little renting issues, you know, the odd bad landlord. It, at its best, I think it's looking at the kind of whole system, I guess, intervening on a particular side, I suppose. When you talk about the Seven Sisters, I think of a bit in your book where you talk about a strategy that you think local authorities have taken, which is you don't look after a building or an estate. You let the repairs build up. You let it go to rack and ruin. I think you talk about Collyhurst in this context. Maybe you also talk about the cardroom estate in, in Ancos. I think Seven Sisters in Rochdale might fit into this category. And I've, I've been into some of those flats. And obviously the, the buildings have been let go a little bit. And then 
you're saying the local authorities make the argument, well, we've got to demolish this and we've got to kick people out because we have... You make the argument that that's been a deliberate strategy. Like, that, that's, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting thing for people to think about, I guess. I mean, you, you're really saying, like, local authorities are complicit in making residents' lives worse in order to further their economic model, effectively. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think this is broadly, you know, in London particularly, this has been seen as you run an estate down, you, you induce the kind of police has become blighted, but this is a kind of created blight. The police is devalue, they're not kept in good standard. And then the obvious kind of thing that is presented then is, well, let's demolish it and build something else. They're two sides of the same coin, you know, new development on one hand and then kind of disinvestment or, or, or kind of lack of investment. On the other hand, and there's loads of examples in Manchester, those you mentioned, I mean, we were in, a, in St George's in Hume, just last week at a tenants meeting and the tenant said this social housing provider they're never going to do the repairs that we want because effectively and this is basically where the chester road developments are moving up ultimately they just want to knock this down and and sell the land this is what people see in their day-to-day lives i mean this isn't something i've made up Um, and it's also kind of a pattern that we see emerging the card room estate is a great example like it was run down. The anchors that is there now is lauded in various ways by various people. But to build that, they had to deliberately kind of mismanage an estate, run it down and then demolish it, kick everyone out and flood it and put a marina on top. <laughs> so, yeah, these processes have, have unfolded. And I think that is you know, what the book's saying and, and not just me, um, but that's kind of built into the, the kind of logic of these kind of processes. This person in St George said to me, yeah, they want to do a London here. So it's that kind of thing of like, people have seen it happen elsewhere. Yeah. Sitting in that chair a few months ago was Mike Emmerich, who represents a different point of view about the city's development. He used to work as an economist for the city, helped negotiate with the devolution deals. Someone like him would say, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but you know, the, the, the camp of people who basically think the way that Greater Manchester has developed has been largely positive for the city and for the city region. People like that would say... A place like the Cardroom Estate had been very, very unpopular for years. It wasn't sort of a, a recent development. And that in order to get investment, the city had to do something radical. They had to hand over a lot of land or sell it cheap, or they had to go into this big private partnership with Abu Dhabi, which you're critical of the, in the book. And otherwise there wouldn't have been the investment, and otherwise there wouldn't have been the housing. And, other, and, and if there hadn't been the housing, people you know, wouldn't have been able to move here from other places to set up a life here or have a family or get a job or whatever. What do you make of that kind of pragmatic argument for decisions that the city has taken? Well, I think on one hand, Mike Emmerich obviously has kind of conceded the central point of a lot of the research into the Abu Dhabi thing that land was sold off on the cheap in order to stimulate a particular form of development. It wasn't like a... There was an ulterior motive at play, I suppose, which I don't think would have been a point conceded before, you know, people like John and stuff did that work. I mean, yeah, that's kind of obviously what they did. I don't, it's not It's not that controversial to say that that's what they did, I suppose. What are the other effects of that? I mean, you, you've written on Ancoats and the kind of... the divide within there and, and this kind of sense of neighborhood hostility or whatever i mean you, we under, you can understand that by seeing what actually happened there and you know the the way in which so much stuff was taken away from people the way you know the whole thing over the dispensary and the big fight over that like there was a trust broken from people and i think people expected better i suppose from from their council from their labor council 
and and trust was broken and i think you know there's people across the city who feel like trust has been broken that you know yeah, maybe one of the mistakes there was kind of pretending that this new development, New Islington, was going to be for the residents who were previously there, because it explicitly isn't. And yes, there was extra housing provided for some of the people who lived in the Carter Estate, social housing. But basically, the New Islington project was about creating housing for um, people who probably weren't professional jobs and who can afford to pay £700 a month in rent. And the cafes and the bars and the restaurants there, the organic this and the, the sort of bakery you've got there, Pollen, they are very much for a different demographic. Yeah. So, so it might have been more honest to say, we need to create a neighbourhood for this totally different demographic who we believe are important for, for the city to grow, rather than, as you say in the book and as you can see in these YouTube videos from the time, kind of let, making people think that you're regenerating the neighbourhood for them. That, that yeah. was per- perhaps the sleight of hand. Well, there. maybe, but would they have got away with saying yeah, we're going to socially cleanse you all and put some new people here. <laughs> if they'd have just been honest about what they wanted to do, would they have been able to do it? I mean, they had to deceive people. They had to create this sort of, yes, you're going to be involved in it, you're going to have a stake in it, we're going to create an advisory board that will listen to you, and then ultimately all those residents resigned quite soon on because it was clear that there wasn't any intention of listening. But would they have actually been able to politically say, actually, you know, we don't want you in this part of the city, clear off, we're going to socially cleanse you and put some rich people here instead. I mean, you're right that that's, that would be more honest because that's what they did and that's what it, the whole thing's about. But if they're honest, does, would, would they have got away with it? Is the question. Did they have to deceive people? Yeah, I mean, when I wrote my piece about New Islington, I actually had some readers being like, you have been too reductive here. You claim that all the people who are living in New Islington are now rich, but actually a lot of them you know, came from working class backgrounds and they now work professional jobs. They would say there's more nuance going on there. Like, do you think it's a bad thing that somewhere like New Islington pops up in Manchester? Do you think that kind of housing should be created for that demographic of people? Um, yeah, but I suppose <laughs> the question is, do you clear council estates to do that? And do you not replace social housing to do that? Obviously, there's a need for housing for all sorts of people. It's just... <laughs> Should you knock down hundreds of homes to do that? That's the question. I mean, I, I don't think you should, but people obviously think that you should. So, And I suppose the other thing is with, like, people living in New Islington now, and I suppose this is the thing about the rentier thing, is, like, people are paying a lot of their income on rent. You might, you might have a professional job or you might live in a nice new flat. It might not even be that nice. Sometimes these things are thrown up. Cracks are beginning to show already in a lot of these new flats. Uh, you know, give it 10 years. Will these be the slums of the future? You know, the whole thing is speculative by nature. That you throw it up, build it cheap, put in people who pay good rents, take the money out and leave. I suppose the, the question is, like, is it actually good that, you know, all these professionals or people working in bars or whatever are living in these new flats and paying you know, a third to half of their income on rent. I mean, I don't think that's good for the city either. It would be better if that money was circulating in the local economy, if people were paying cheaper rents, they could spend it on businesses locally and it would stay locally rather than being sucked out into pension funds around the world. So it's kind of both sides. I don't think it, you know, it's, it's it, what's happened is not great for people whose homes, communities were destroyed. It's also, I don't think, that great for people who are paying loads of money on their rent basically for it to disappear into someone else's bank balance in, in, in a kind of asset, you know, in a investment yeah. fund. And, and that's a big argument in the, in the book, that Manchester has become a place whose housing is dominated, not just by private renting, but by private renting that is 
owned by overseas investors or pension funds or whatever. I think the building we're in now, the Royal Exchange Building, I think it's owned partly by a Bavarian pension fund and an American investor. That's a classic example. You, you, I can tell from the book that you are very uncomfortable with that. But do you think the composition in Manchester of private rented versus social versus owned is, is, is fundamentally wrong? I mean, I think there should be more public housing in, in Britain. Yeah. <laughs> council housing has been a 40-year attack on council housing. I think, you know, if you're a bad landlord, not finding a good house, it should be remunicipalised, is what I think. And I don't, you know, this is stuff that the New Economics Foundation are saying. It's the kind of thing that, that would really affect the, the, like, tenure mixes in cities, as if, if, if we could X right to buy properties that are now owned by private landlords. There's no real justification for that. I think some of those properties should be taken back into the local state's hands. Obviously, we're very far from any of that kind of thing happening. Uh, but I don't think these are like crazy ideas. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we're even having conversations with people in, in Manchester City Council about, of like, well, could could we use CPO powers to take bad landlords' properties off them? I suppose the thing about the pension funds, I mean, and the kind of institutional capital is that, and this is like, my book's really just synthesising, and I think that's the thing to get across, is like it's built on the research of others. It's not a kind of necessarily uh, you know it's obviously original in the way it's all put together but a lot of it's built on the the research of people you know john silver's work rich goulding's work all this kind of stuff to put together it in a place where people can kind of read um that in one volume and as, uh, you know all that work is out there and it, and it shows the kind of growing role of of these kind of financial actors in housing and, and the effects of that on affordability and, and rents uh, and kind of various dynamics within the local property market yeah that debate's ongoing and this book is really just kind of remounting it i suppose yeah i think what's interesting to me reading the book is that i'm interested in the book because it's about manchester and i live in manchester but the question i've always had about how manchester is changing is how different is it to other places like how unique is it now i would say i get the impression from your book that you think is a sort of it is a real rentier's paradise you know it is a place where private rented has just gone mad but it also kept on coming to mind when I was reading it that Manchester has more social housing as a proportion of its overall sort of dwellings than a anywhere else in greater Manchester any of the other boroughs or b any other city so Belfast Birmingham Bristol Cardiff I think all the other big cities Newcastle Nottingham so I looked up the kind of proportion of private rented versus social versus owned and it was something like owned was the biggest social housing was 29 percent Private rented was almost identical. I think it was like 6,000 extra units. So it's basically, you've got the biggest it's owned, and then you've got private and, and, and social rented are about the same. And it kind of looked like that's the kind of mix that other cities might want. I mean, they've probably got more owned and less rented overall. But like, if people want to have more social housing, granted people want more and more built, but the, the decrease in social housing across Greater Manchester, I think, over the past you know 20 years has only been about maybe 5,000 units in, in the whole of Greater Manchester. But the... Manchester has a lot as a proportion. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these other cities, I'm sure people like you in other cities would way rather have Manchester's mix than what they have. Well, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I actually didn't realise before writing the book that Manchester has the highest proportion of renters in both sectors yeah. of any city in the country, which is kind of crazy. But then that is the product of the history, like some clearances and the kind of post-war council building yeah. created, you know, it, it got rid of a lot of um, own occupation, you know for better or worse. I suppose that, I mean, other people would say, yeah, it'd be great to have as much social housing as Manchester does, but do you also want that kind of real estate 
boom in the city centre at the same time. I suppose the thing about Manchester, and you know, is a lot of it has been concentrated in the city centre for the last thirty years. People have, have often said, "Well, what's the problem? You know, it's just in the city centre. It's not displacing anyone really, except Cardroom Estate, which is kind of true." But I think what what I'm trying to explore in the book is like, what's the relationship between that and the rest of the city? What's the relationship between that and the inner city? Because like no one, you know, Manchester city centre was always this kind of commercial core, so no one ever lived there. Um, and then you always had this kind of inner city, working class inner city. What what is it that happens when you do do this kind of real estate boom in the city centre, which is kind of where we're at now? You know, we've had that over the last twenty years, thirty years, particularly over the last ten years, though. But but you know the book isn't really making any predictions, although it's it's sort of saying, well, look at the dynamics that are starting to unfold in the inner city between that kind of boom in the city centre and these kind of you know a lot of excellent social housing in the inner city. You know what happens there basically, yeah. and and I th- you know the last chapter talks a lot about you know things that are happening in North Manchester or around the university in South Manchester, what people are saying and you know what I've seen. Well, tenants union sees of rent rises and, and threats of demolition and all this kind of stuff. And that sort of slow neighbourhood change, displacement isn't always just you get your house knocked down and you have to leave. It's that sense that, like, an area's losing what made it the area for people to live there. It's that kind of indirect displacement that kind of draws on studies elsewhere as this kind of, this kind of phenomenon. Yeah. But that's, you know, talk to anyone in Hume about, like, the loss of pubs in mm-hmm. Hume shops that were catering to the local population the replacement by the student population and everything kind of orientating to that it's very very clear that that displacement is real people experience it that's something that i think is is clearly unfolding in the city and i would say that that's related to the kind of boom in the city center so yeah going back to your question like people might want the big social housing do they? Do you also want the kind of the risks inherent with that kind of real estate boom, and and the 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 you know the ways that might unfold over the next decade, I suppose. Yeah. What do you make of Salford? Because if I walk from here into Salford, from here in St Anne's Square into Salford, I mean that is on steroids. The number of buildings going up. It seems like if there's a Manchester model, the Salford's local government have taken it and they've amped it up. I mean, I I sort of looking up the numbers and private rental sector grew in Salford in the past 10 years, it grew 59%. I think it grew 19% in Manchester or something. So it almost feels like maybe Salford should be in the name of the book. <laughs> maybe. That's where it's going nuts. I suppose Salford, Salford's record on Section 106 contributions is a lot, has been a lot better than Manchester's for the last 10 years. Salford Council is building council housing of a sort with um, Dereve. There's been an attempt, I think, to... Obviously, there is there is a boom in, in like, I don't know, Greengate area of Salford and the bits near Manchester city centre. But Salford Council would appear to be to have been a lot better at sort of trying to harness that for wider kind of purposes in the city. Whereas I think in Manchester, you know, the lack of Section 106, social housing, all this kind of stuff, there's been a much more like, just let it happen. It's that kind of, it goes back to that sort of laissez-faire Manchester liberalism that's like, you know, just... Just let the market do what it wants. So I think Salford, and this was particularly a thing, you know, five five years ago, that people were kind of looking at, well, look at Manchester's policy and what Richard Lees is doing, and look at Salford under Paul Dennett, and there was a kind of, we're comparing them, basically. 
and and Salford, I think, came across a lot better in terms of like its um, its ability to sort of tame and harness that kind of real estate boom for wider purposes. Like it felt like the state still had its own kind of social agenda. It wasn't just saying oh, let let the boom happen. We'll give you cheap land and and let you cheap finance and all this kind of stuff. So I think that's probably the difference. But yeah, the books the books about Manchester because I think. You know, Manchester's always been the sort of economic dynamo of the whole region. Um, and, you know, little bits of Trafford and little bits of Salford are kind of sucked into that, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but to play devil's advocate, Paul Dennett, I mean, he's considered more of a man of the left than, for example, Sir Richard Lees certainly was, mayor of Salford. I've interviewed him. But if you look at the numbers, he's pursuing the Manchester model, or local leaders in Salford more broadly are pursuing the Manchester model more than Manchester is. I mean, if private renters... The number of households living in PRS, private rental sector, rose 59% in Salford over 10 years and 19% in Manchester. It kind of, a couple of million here or there with Section 106, I mean, there are very small amounts of money in the totality of things. Isn't it actually the case that the much-fated left-wing administration in Salford has taken the Manchester playbook and is running with it and is and is and has put it on steroids? I mean... Um... I obviously haven't looked at these figures. <laughs> don't know what you want me to say to that. I suppose it's just... Uh... I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is the argument of the book is very much come and look at Manchester as an example because it is, as you say, the paradigmatic city yeah. for, for this neoliberal growth story. And what I'm trying to say is actually if you look at other cities or you look at other bits of Greater Manchester, are you not seeing... Well, well I guess the question is, would Salford be able to do that if Manchester hadn't pursued this course since the 80s? And I suppose that's the... I mean, yeah. this is this is the importance of the sort of historical view, is you, when you can contextualise it in in the trajectory, and I think that's what the book's trying to do. It's like, how do we how do we actually get here? Your figures, I'm sure, I'm sure they're not wrong. Salford's doing what it's doing at the moment, you know, varying approaches in the last decade but it's all part of the same thing and I think you need to locate it really in the in the political trajectory of Manchester itself yeah I I think that the question a lot of people will have when they're thinking about this is why like why would local leaders have pursued this strategy over other strategies so you you talk in the book about the the switch in the 80s from a sort of more left-wing administration in Manchester to a kind of accommodation with the market and accommodation with the Thatcher government you talk very interestingly about the Olympic bid this guy called Bob Scott who you actually think is more important than Tony Wilson in the whole sort of uh, story of Manchester and the question that just kept on coming into my mind was why do you think they pursued that strategy well, it's interesting you characterise it as a switch because that's kind of the opposite of what the book argues. And the book argues that it came out of the conditions of political defeat in the 80s. The argument that people make at the moment is, oh, yeah, they, they saw the light, you know, they'd realised the market was good, blah, blah, blah. That's a sort of retrospective justification of, of, of what happened by people generally who have an interest in, in making those arguments. I don't think it was a switch. I think, and as the book shows, it was a defeat by Thatcher, not just of local government, but of trade union movement and, and various other forces in, in the country. You know, it was that political struggle that was lost which laid the groundwork for what is today. I mean, Graham Stringer sort of admitted that defeat in 87 with the general election in that letter to Nicholas Ridley. And it's that came out of the conditions of a defeat. Uh, and I think that's really important to realise. And, and a kind of making good of the situation. I think, you know... The early stuff, it's clear that there were long-term policy goals that the council wanted to pursue, you know, a new concert hall for the Halle, 
regeneration of Hume, all these kind of things, that they were able to sort of accommodate those agendas within the new reality. What the that section of the book says that in doing that, and it, and it's not necessarily to say they were at fault for doing that because this is this was just the reality that existed after the political defeats of kind of eighty four to eighty seven. But in doing that, it changed the the nature of the city. It changed the sort of the structure of power in the city. It empowered people around. Bob Scott is used as this kind of example of the kind of the, the business circuits, the new Manchester men. You know, these people kind of grew in in influence and power through these kind of informal networks that, to some extent, started to kind of circumvent the structures of the local state. And it's that sort of dynamism, I suppose, that dy- sorry, that dynamic, looking at that history starts to explain how we got here, basically. So I don't think it was a switch in that suddenly they were like, oh, sorry, we were stupid and wrong. I think it was more, we're defeated, how can we make the best of the situation? And then over time, obviously, the, the, a new generation come in, Lee Bernstein, they, you know, they're not necessarily rooted in those as much in the kind of struggles uh, and you move into the 90s and everything that happens. So I think that's the kind of the historicising of, of the moment, I suppose. Yeah. But do you think the people pursuing this particular strategy, what you call the Manchester model, do you think they were trying to improve the lives of people who lived in Manchester? I, I mean, I think... In, in the late 80s, they were, they were, there was an attempt to make good of a terrible situation, which was deindustrialization. There was another route at one point that could have been pursued, I think, in the you know, late 70s, early 80s. That route was closed off. It wasn't possible anymore. And I think you know, there was obviously a, a, a terrible situation that had befallen the city. And there was an attempt to make the best of it. But that, over time, over 40 years, leads to the situation today. We're not in post-industrial the job collapse that is was the kit situation then we're not in that world anymore the world's completely different are we in the same world we're not is, is that approach the same one to keep pursuing i mean the book suggests no yeah what would you like in the present day to happen in manchester i mean you a people to read your book and to be inspired by it but what what do you think that manchester could do differently or what what would you like to change or happen uh, well, I think the planning department needs completely overhauling. I think it's it's pretty clear the kind of the way in which that that is structured and the kind of powers of the officers over the elected members that there's clearly an agenda that's being set within the kind of bureaucracy of the local state. There is a hangover from the lease era. Obviously, we're not Richard Lease isn't the leader of the council. Bev Craig is, and I think Bev Craig has has made some. Um, some positive moves basically around social housing and focus on I mean the housing team has been completely overhauled Dave Ashmore is doing a much much better job than what was happening previously I think these are all positive things but I think the the the, the thing at the heart of the city the kind of property model and that you know as the books shows is kind of concentrated in the planning department remains unchanged Craig for whatever reason was unable or unwilling to change that and I think as long as that, that machine remains in place, these logics will just unfold and the trajectory will continue. So I think overhauling planning is probably a major thing that needs to happen. And not in the sense that, you know, some people will say that we need to remove all planning restrictions. I think we need to return to a, a spirit of kind of democratic planning and kind of planning for wider social outputs than just the balance sheets of property investors, which... I would say is largely the situation at the moment with you know the massive wave of PBSA that was approved last week uh, last month. But yeah, purpose-built student accommodation, six seven thousand units approved in one meeting. No, not that many, five thousand. 
this doesn't seem particularly rational, I don't think. Yeah. Final, final question. Um, I've never written a book before, so I don't know what sort of expectations you go into <laughs> writing a book with, but who do you hope reads this and what sort of impact do you hope the book will have? Who do I hope reads it? Anyone interested in Manchester? I think we haven't really talked about the historic stuff, but it provides a, a history of the city that seeks to kind of contextualise what's going on at the moment. Yeah, as I said in an email to Molly, like even if you ultimately disagree with some of the things that I've been saying today and what we've been talking about on my position and other people who share my position, like I think there's a lot of value in the, in the book and the way in which it looks at the city's history and kind of puts the context in a much longer frame than you know other people have done. So, yeah, I mean, to listeners of The Mill, I think if you're interested in the city, I think you should read the book, uh, even if you ultimately disagree with my positions on, on the current property boom, because I think there is, you know, there's a lot of... I think that the, histori- the historical narrative about the city that we often... that is kind of dominant is rather tired one, and I think part of the purpose of that history was to kind of explode the way we look at the past and why do we look why do why why do we obsess about certain things but ignore other things why do we care so much about the hacienda but ignore the new music manchester school of musical modernism you know these things i think we should think a little bit more about as a city Um, and i hope that even if you know today we've talked a lot about the, the property boom and that's obviously your interest but i think it's not just about that, and, and there's a lot more in this book. And I think even if you are interested in that, it, 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 it synthesises the critique that I think people should be aware of. Yeah, definitely. Well, there's loads in this book that we haven't talked about. There's the Industrial Revolution stuff. There's actually pre-Industrial Revolution stuff that's really interesting. Stuff about the Hacienda, stuff about Bob Scott being more important than Tony Wilson. There's a lots of amazing local colour. And there's a lot of um, super interesting stuff about the sort of I don't know, the homophobia of the media in the 80s, for example, when, when, when Labour was pursuing a, a sort of a rights agenda and, and there was a lot of pushback from the media, etc. So there's tons and tons of interesting stuff. I've no doubt a lot of mill readers are gonna, and listeners are going to buy it. Um, Isaac, thanks so much. Isaac's book is called The Rentier City, Manchester and the Making of the Neoliberal Metropolis. And it comes out this month, I believe, around the time that this podcast comes out. So when you listen to this, you can go online and you can order the book. You certainly can. And where would you recommend people order it from? Uh, from Repeater's website, I think. Repeater's website is where you need to head. But it will be in bookshops as well. I'm doing an event at Blackwell's on the 7th of March, which probably will be after this is released, um, which might be the one to come to. But the launch is the 29th of Feb as well, if that's not There's a book, there's a book, there's events, there's all sorts. Isaac, thanks very much for coming on. <laughs> thanks, Josh. Cheers. Cheers.